As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is the weekend review where we discuss all the major talking points from the weekend's action across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host today. And I'm joined by the Athletic's very own Jay Harris, a very well-travelled Jay Harris. How are you doing, mate? How have your, well, journey, your expeditions been with Brentford this weekend? Um, I'm just going to say, well, first of all, I'm all good. I hope you are too. Uh, and in terms of my travels to, to Newcastle and back, they were nowhere near as enjoyable as your trip to uh, Palermo. So uh, maybe we'll just leave it there because uh, <laughs> it feels like I've hiked up a mountain and back. So, but I've, yeah, I've made it. I'm like, as well. Yeah, exactly. You're back. Yeah, You're let's, back. let's not even talk about that result. For everyone wondering what on earth we're going on about because Newcastle to London is not actually as far as almost anything across the pond. Uh, there were no trains whatsoever today. And Jay has travelled up sort of five, six hour drive. There was a lot of Brentford fans on buses overnight and all sorts. Um, so it's been a, been a long old journey from this weekend. But today we're going to talk about a very impressive display from Graham Potter's Chelsea uh, as the Blues racked up their second successive Premier League win under their new man in charge. An absolute classic in the Bundesliga as Klaska left us with a dramatic finish in Dortmund and Milan's win over Juventus in Serie A. But we'll start, Jay, at the bridge. Chelsea beat Wolverhampton Wanderers 3-0 on Peacock. Second time in a matter of four days that they've hit this scoreline. Three out of four wins since he's taken charge in all competitions and three wins in a row. So far, so good under Potter. Yeah, and Wolves were probably the perfect opponents for them to kind of keep, keep the Graham Potter um, you know, development rolling. Um, they're obviously yeah. in a bit of a strange situation at the moment where they've let Bruno Lager go. They've obviously been linked with Julian Lopetegui. Obviously, Lopetegui's not been doing a good job at Sevilla. So I'm sure there are, Wolver, you know, Wolves fans wondering, you know, what are we getting ourselves in for here? Um, but on Chelsea, I think this is where Chelsea fans should be getting really, really excited, right? Um, I'm sure we're going to touch on it in a minute, but Chelsea played a completely different way against AC Milan in, in midweek in the Champions League and won that game. They went to a back four against Wolves and they've won this game pretty comfortably. You know, you're seeing Mason Mount thriving, Raheem Sterling and Aubameyang didn't even come off the bench. So it's Potter fully flexing his, his tactical ability and using different systems, but also fantastic man management. So Chelsea have kind of got quite a, quite a solid win and they've managed to rest players as well. So it's a really encouraging sign for Chelsea fans and worrying for the rest of the league that, oh, OK, Potter's going to get this team rolling now and they're probably going to start slowly climbing up the table. Yeah, I mean, well, they've already started that ascent in, in, in so many ways. But yeah, this is exactly kind of what, it, what we wanted to get into. The fact that they've been able to switch systems, the fact that they seem to be able or early signs suggest that Potter is going to be able to utilise the depth of Chelsea squad. And we talked about this right at the start of the season, about how you fit in all of these attacking talents into this system, how you fit them in, how you make sure that everybody's happy. And they have a 
plethora, if you will, I suppose, of, of attacking riches at their disposal. How do you make all those component parts click? How do you keep everyone working? And, and what we're seeing here is Potter starting to kind of game manage in a bit that maybe Tuchel didn't towards the end of his tenure. Now, that's not taken away from Tuchel. He is a wonderful manager who won Chelsea the Champions League by outmaneuvering other coaches, albeit mostly at a defensive capacity. This is something different. What we're seeing here from Chelsea is, is expansive, or at least very much has been this week. We're also seeing these kind of shifts of, of system that four at the back this week as they kind of went to, to control the midfield against what is a very, very talented Wolves midfield trio, you know, and also, uh, you know, the way that they kind of got at that Wolves back line by stretching the play uh, and not relying quite as much on the wing backs, which is basically where all of the attacking came from at the end of Tuchel's reign. Yeah, exactly that. You've hit the nail on the head. The the kind of conundrum about how did Chelsea fit all of these players into the same starting eleven? The answer is you can't, but the actual solution is that you do different things in different games. As you kind of said, it felt like Tuchel became very predictable and so overly reliant on that 3-4-3 system with, with Reese James in particular and, and Ben Chill on the other side in the end. So for Potter to kind of come in and, and really offer a challenge for players who had been sidelined under Tuchel. So Christian Pulisic, who I'm sure we'll kind of go into in a little bit more depth. Um, Conor Gallagher, he's kind of saying, look, there's going to be, you're going to get minutes. It's up to you to kind of impress. And we're going to play in a way that is hopefully going to get the best out of your different abilities. And I think what we saw with, with Pulisic and Havertz kind of interchanging positions today is kind of the, the beginning of that. And I think it's, it's going to be really refreshing for Chelsea fans to kind of see that because that's what they've always wanted. And... Tuchel, as you've mentioned, got them some fantastic results, obviously got them the Champions League, but they would probably confess that there were times where it felt very pragmatic. And again, that's something you touched on with the defensive approach they often took in games. So I think when you've beaten two teams 3-0 in in consecutively, and one of those teams just happens to be AC Milan, the, the, the Italian champions, I think you know, you're allowed to get excited that, okay, this Chelsea team looks like it's going to be a lot more fluid going forward and we're going to be seeing a lot more just excitement in games. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about Mason Mount briefly because he's a player that sort of splits opinion, I suppose, in in some ways. He's one of those kind of players who Chelsea fans, you know, of a certain vintage we say absolutely love because he's he's a local boy a, an academy product who's who's come good and been a kind of integral part of this kind of new Chelsea that's building itself and you know similar with Reese James but there's less questions I think about Reese James's ability to deliver in big moments and Mason Matt has had his critics down the years of how you kind of get to get the best out of him and, and where he plays. But two assists here. He was good uh, against AC Milan as well. Uh, and Potter's come out and said he doesn't want to put a ceiling on what Mount can achieve. You know, he says the sky's the limit. It does feel that slightly freeing him up to play in these roles and, and giving him that kind of attacking impetus has released him from the shackles of what we saw towards the tail end of that Tuchel regime. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I've always thought Mount's been a been a really good player. There's not been a, a period since I first started watching him where I thought he's not someone who can who can really shine for Chelsea and and for England if he's given the opportunity. I think the the issue was he's very clearly a player who likes to kind of start in a central attacking midfield role and kind of pop up in different positions and have a little bit of freedom. Yeah. And when you're looking at the three four three Chelsea played under Tuchel you're not going to put him in one of the two central midfield roles because effectively they needed Jorginho and Kante and Kovacic to kind of progress the ball and also to kind of offer a defensive screen. Mount's not going to do, Mount's certainly not going to do the defensive side of the game and he's a different kind of attacker to Jorginho and Kovacic. Do you play him on the wings? Yes, he can do you a job there, but does he deserve to start on the wings over, say, a Pulisic or a Ziyech? Or, you know, Werner looking back on last year, you can kind of make that argument. So then all of a sudden you've got a really talented player and you're either playing him out of position or he's starting on the bench. I think Potter's obviously seen, you know, this is a really talented young player who can kind of offer us so much to the team. He's very, very imaginative, very, very creative. So actually let's just play him where he should have been playing the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there wasn't really a ten, I suppose, in the, in the Tuchel system, which makes it difficult. There was the kind of two players who played off the striker, but even that is pushing him slightly into more, 
like tighter channels, I suppose, than maybe he'd want to play. And he wants that freedom, as you say, that ability to to get his head up and dictate. And, you know, the two assists here are two very different assists, but they're both very, very impressive. You know, one is that kind of ping cross, cross the box that goes, you know, over about six players before dropping to Havers. Uh, and the other is this kind of like, delicate gorgeous flick around the corner um for, for peter sick to, to knock things in and but i want to come on to, to christian Pulisic because he's had his critics too right and and there have been questions about where he plays and how he fits into systems and he's another one that maybe struggled a little bit with being kind of pigeonholed in this tuchel system and, and not really being a player who should be a, a player off the off the nine rather someone who wants to to get in those areas and cause problems and and run at defenders um but this felt like a big moment for him to, you know to score this goal it's a great goal it's a really really lovely finish um but equally you, you're kind of looking at it and going right there is now a space an obvious space for you to come into this team now are you going to start every week over raheem sterling probably not but equally you know there are opportunities and there is rotation and all of these things seem to play into his hands at exactly the right time for him as well because you know coming into these international friendlies that we've just come off the back of there were you know kind of where you know where is Christian Pulisic this season because it's very difficult to kind of see what he's been able to do and, and the places he's been able to play because the sample size has been so minimal but if he gets a, a run of games even if they are rotated here you know if he's coming off the bench if he's starting other games that's an amazing thing for the USMNT ahead of the World Cup. Yeah, definitely. I remember um, on one of our first shows when we were still, you know, the transfer window was still going on and Pulisic was kind of linked with Manchester United, which looking back, you know, would have been such a crazy move had that happened. Um, yeah. And we were talking about how he was at a crossroads in his career, you know, 24, 25 years old, and he needed to make sure that he kind of fulfilled his potential and he was in serious danger of, of kind of letting that go to waste because he was playing under a manager who, for whatever reason, I wouldn't even call it him being pigeonholed into roles he wasn't right for under Tuchel. It just felt like there was clearly an, not a personal issue between him and Tuchel in terms of they had some massive falling out, but clearly Tuchel just didn't, you know, he wasn't Tuchel's kind of player and he preferred different people. So what we are now seeing under Potter is potentially Pulisic blossoming, finally. So going back to what we said in, in the summer, it's kind of come full circle where he just needed a new manager with new ideas who was kind of going to give him the freedom to play how he should be playing. Very instinctive, running at players, not kind of worrying, um, just starting into space as he sees it. And as you said, his goal was fantastic. The pass and the move into the box. And what, we're only five or so weeks away from the World Cup now, maybe maybe six or seven. And that should be getting every USMNT fan excited um, yeah, just about got there. The yeah, yeah, yeah. We love should, an acronym here. <laughs> should be getting everybody excited that, okay, finally, it looks like he's going to be given the opportunity to flourish. And as you said, he probably won't start week in, week out at Chelsea under Potter because one, there's so much competition for places, you know, it's coming up against Raheem Sterling. But then at the same time, there's enough games. Um, the schedule for until the World Cup is crazy. So yeah. everybody's going to get minutes. But then also, that's your challenge, you know. Get into the starting eleven ahead of Sterling. You've you've played today. You've scored. Well done. And now, if you can keep doing that on a consistent basis, the opportunities will come. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, someone else who who took their opportunity today was was Armando Broja. He he scored his first Chelsea league goal. Very, very well taken. And every time he's come on, I think he offers something a little bit different. Now, there's an element of this about dynamism and the fact that he's young and hungry. And obviously those kind of players always give a little bit more. That does feel like they've got that kind of bite and energy at the end of games, especially as, as defenders are tiring. But this is a really good goal. Brozier obviously was at Southampton last season and, and did really well for the first half of the season, dropped off a little bit in, in the mm. second but there's been some big calls on social media for Brozier to start getting consistent minutes now for this Chelsea team. He seems to be everything you would want in a striker. And in an era, right, where we're watching Erling Haaland that absolutely blitz the Premier League and out and out number nine, who's physical, who's fast and who's able to score goals. Now, I'm not saying Brozier is as good as Erling Haaland before anybody goes absolutely nuts to me. But <laughs> Brozier has some of those qualities. He's quick. He can get off the shoulder of defenders. He's a nightmare physically. Uh, and he's able to, to kind of get in and amongst it as well. Because he can score goals with his feet, he can score goals with his head. He, he's a really well-rounded striker, I think. 
I wonder now if, if his time is coming at Chelsea because Potter is not someone who will revert to players because they have a massive price tag or because mm-hmm. they have a massive name. Potter is someone who has been shown to give you the chance. And when these opportunities come around and people take them, he's willing to stick with them. Yeah, well, he was probably always going to struggle for for opportunities under Tuchel because obviously Chelsea started the season so poorly and it just became about ensuring that they got a result in in any what shape or form. Hans Tuchel hates number nines. (laughs) I was thinking when we touched on Mount earlier that I should have said it would have been interesting to see Lukaku um, play as a number nine with with Mount as a number 10. Who knows what would have happened? Um, But I bet he would have probably been much better in front of goal. But anyways, on to Breuer. He's still only 21 years old. And so yeah. I think we need to be careful of managing expectations. This is no um, criticism of Southampton, but playing for Southampton is a completely different um, challenge to playing yeah. for Chelsea and being expected to lead the line for Chelsea in games where most of the time they're going to be the favourites and they're going to be expected to dominate games. So I think if Potter continues to kind of increase his minutes off the bench and he keeps doing well, that's quite a smart tactic of how to play it. There's no, there's kind of no need to throw him in and kind of give him the pressure of, of starting week in, week out, especially because, you know, Kai Havertz is still doing his thing up there. But then at the same time, and it's the same with, with Pulisic, if he continues to impress in his little cameos off the bench, I'm sure Potter will kind of have the confidence to say, well, actually, I'm going to give you a, a run of games because as you alluded to, he can score with both feet. He can kind of run. He's strong and he's powerful. So he kind of has everything you kind of need to be the complete striker. So it'll be interesting to see his development this season under Potter. It, it, it's it's a fantastic coach as a young young player to kind of have a manager like that who you look at the development of other young players Potter's had, especially at Brighton, you know, your Basumas, your Kukareas. Chelsea fans should be excited at what he's going to do with Broya. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, just to flip on Wolves quickly, they look a little bit rudderless. They need someone at the helm and fast. We mentioned this at the top, obviously. Got rid of Bruno Lage after the last result and, and it all felt a bit like, woo, when we said, was it harsh? And, you know, we had questions over whether it was slightly too fast or slightly too quick. But ultimately, they haven't brought someone in immediately, which makes it feel a bit, maybe not knee-jerk, that's probably the wrong wrong kind of answer, but a little bit... Okay, we need to get rid of him before we worked out who we were going to bring in as a contingency plan. I just think that the Wolves are in a point here where, as you say, this schedule is stacked. This schedule is, is so busy from here to the World Cup. If they don't get a handle on this quickly, this could spiral quite quickly out of control. Yeah, I think with Wolves, just because of their you know relationship with with George Mendes, you always kind of wonder what exactly is kind of going on behind the scenes. And so when they've fired Bruno Larger, but then not brought in a replacement straight away, there's definitely a small element of you that kind of wonders, well, are Mendes and kind of Wolves owners just waiting for certain cards to fall into the right places? Like there's some sort of master plan, but it's just not fully revealed itself yet. Um, So you'd expect them to kind of like pull out the stops to make sure that they arrest this slide. But at the moment, they just don't look particularly good at all. And yes, there's... There's a funny angle and a really intriguing angle to bringing Diego Costa back to the Premier League. But if you've got to rely on a a veteran striker to kind of score you your goals, who's barely played any football in the last 18 months, that's really not a good sign of how your club's kind of been managed during that period. Of course, injuries play a factor, but that should not be your your go-to main option to bring Diego Costa back out of the cold and for him to be leading your forward line because that's just no guarantee that's going to work. Um, so really what they should have had already is different options they could have used. Pedro Neto's now injured until after the World Cup. So that's another goal-scoring option that's been taken away from them. Yeah, so a massive blow for Portugal as well. It's uh, There are just kind of a few things that all kind of come together at the same time to leave them in a really, really sticky situation. Yeah, yeah, it's just a, a kind of funny one given the, the timing of things and given the fact that the international break you know, had passed basically when the decision was made <laughs> and the fact that we are now rolling into this big schedule um, and, and lots of games that come in very quick succession, meaning that 
there are plenty of points on offer, but also plenty of points to be lost. Um, mm. And if you don't have a direction, you don't have one of those ideas of how things are working as a kind of cohesive whole, it all just feels a little bit all over the place. So it's going to be very interesting to keep an eye on Wolves. But let's travel to Germany, shall we? Where Dortmund hosted Bayern at the Westfalen Stadion on ESPN+. Jay, it was a bit of a funny one because for a while this felt like it was just going to be another one of these games for Borussia Dortmund. Plenty of chances, plenty of the ball, and then they found themselves 2-0 down. But for once, that's not how it played out. Yusuf Makoko did brilliantly to pull one back. And then in the dying embers, Anthony Modeste headed in a dramatic late equaliser. We've questioned Brissy Dortmund's mentality before, but there were no questions here. This was sensational stuff. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I knew this game was going to be uh, spicy when Sabitzer was booked after about 90 seconds and, and Bellingham put, put, that, put that, I'm trying to think of the right word, Crunching, exactly, crunching tackle on on Musiala, and and when I watch that, it reminds me of um, because obviously Musiala and Bellingham played with each other from from quite a young age. It reminds me of when you play with your friends or you play with like an older brother at any type of sport, and you're maybe you know you've nutmegged someone or you've done a little bit of this, and then the big brother or your older mate just comes over and says, oh, "I've had enough of this. I'm just I'm, I'm just taking you out." <laughs> it just pro- proper gave me vibes of that, but. In terms of the actual game itself, you have to take your hat off to Edin Terzic for making those those substitutions because Adeyemi and Modest made such a huge difference. Adeyemi was just a constant pest. He obviously kind of played quite a big role in Coman getting sent off um, and was just so full of energy and pushing forward. And Modest obviously made that very clever run and got the assist from Okoku's first goal. Then... Missed an opportunity to to make Massive it two all in the eighty second minute, um, but then was obviously in the right place at the right time to 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 get the equaliser late on and send Oliver Kahn into a, a, an absolute fury. If you've not seen it, people, please watch the video. Of That's going to be memed for years. Bang, to come, yeah, banging banging the table when when Dortmund equalised. But as you said, Dortmund did have plenty of chances in, in, in this game, and but at the same time, Mayer kind of kept the minute. There are a couple of saves he made. Um, Bayern, as you know, just looking so smooth and they're always a threat. Um, so they did kind of really well to to come back and draw in the end. But what baffles me, because I was just looking at the table, is that they're both on 16 points after nine games, right? And Bayern have scored 25 goals and only conceded eight goals. Dortmund have scored 13 goals and conceded 12. So I just can't work out how they've both got the same amount of points when if you if you didn't know what points they were on and you just looked at the goal difference alone, you would think that Bayern were like 10 points clear at the top of the table. So it's just it's just so bizarre. Yeah, they have their moments, don't they, Bayern? But equally, they, they have their collapses. And, and I suppose that brings us on to the question, is there worries about the, the collapse of this Bayern side? And, and equally, I mean, they probably roll quite nicely into one. Kingsley's Komen's red card is ridiculous like it's one of those ones where you go you're on a yellow what are you doing like why Mm. have you decided to haul a player back are there questions over their discipline under Nagelsmann and their ability to see out games because ultimately this is a game that they should have just seen out and and yes you know you can look at it and go right the the chance for Modeste in the 82nd minute if if that's not a wake-up call where they've missed an absolute sitter to equalize at two all it doesn't wake you up and just let you see it you're like okay the game doesn't it doesn't come in here anymore you know Delict was pulled from this game you know relatively early uh, on a yellow card it just feels a lot like Bayern have the the tendency to get themselves into positions at the moment where you're going, you're going to have to make changes because players are are doing stupid things and you're running a risk of going down to 10, which they obviously did in this game. Yeah, I mean, obviously playing at Dortmund and especially if you're Bayern, it's always going to be just a simply like chaotic occasion. Like, you know, it's going to be fiery. Uh, you know, it's going to be a fiery atmosphere, but players, Bayern's players have that much experience and have done it so many times before they should be able to to manage and handle those situations a lot better. I obviously joked about Sabitzer getting booked inside the first 90 seconds, but that's also kind of like the worst thing. It's kind of like the worst thing that can happen in a derby because it just shows that, you know, have players allowed themselves to kind of get wrapped up into what's going on in the stands. And I'm sure Dortmund's fans were absolutely loving it when they were seeing Bayern get booked so many times and, and all those kind of tackles are flying in. So I think there's definitely question marks about how, 
they just didn't calm the occasion down. When when Dort when Dortmund pulled that first goal back, Bayern should have had the experience to kind of kill that game off. But as you said, they kind of kept encouraging Dortmund. It wasn't like it was a last gasp saloon when they got that equaliser. Yes, it was in the last minute, but Modest could have equalised 10 minutes prior to that anyways. So, and there were just a couple of other occasions. You mentioned Delitz getting pulled early. I know Goretzka got booked. And if you watch it back, when he gets booked, the referee has to whistle to him quite a few times. So it's yeah. almost like he's just like, oh, I can't be bothered with you. And it's that kind of attitude, which, you know, we saw it with Ramos. Ramos did it for PSG and he ended up getting sent off. Um, so definitely question marks about how they just need to react far better in those situations. Because if come the end of the season and the title's decided by one or two points, you would look back at moments like this and say, this is where the title was, was potentially won or potentially lost depending on how you you know you show your character in those those tough and tricky moments. Yeah, I think this is it. I mean I think we're so used to Bayern just being this kind of inevitable steamroller that when they show any signs of the kind of facade cracking, it goes, "Oh, what's going on here? This is not <laughs> this is not the Bayern that we we kind of are used to." And look, there there've been plenty of changes this season and and look, Bayern's under, underlying numbers are still very impressive, right? They over the course of this season, yes, there have been question marks over some of the results in the Bundesliga, but their underlying kind of chances created, the fact that they are making these exactly. opportunities, none of that is a massive worry. What's a worry for me is that you expect Bayern to just have the kind of nous to mm. not do silly things at the end of games because they are such a winning machine, especially domestically. And for that to be questioned here and that that facade to start to slip a little bit, perhaps with with these kind of things, with the Komen red card, with the fact that players are getting booked after uh, you know thirty seconds, uh, with with the fact that everyone's heads seem to be lost a bit. And look, Thomas Muller wasn't on the pitch, and that's a massive thing. His you know vocal vocalization of, of the way that the game works. I know that they call him Radio Muller. You know the way that he is <laughs> constantly talking to people about how the game is is playing out and how Bayern sort their game plan out is massively integral to the way that the side works. And I know that Nagelsmann is trying to change the approach slightly in terms of making it more communal in terms of scoring goals. But if that's at the cost of Bayern's kind of winning edge, like kind of waning, that would be the main worry for me. There is, I suppose, a question on the other side as well. And, and Bayern fans listen to this, I'm sure, will be screaming. They're going, you're talking about all these red cards. Are you going to talk about Bellingham's? Yes, we are. Uh, because you said it at the start, there was that crunching tackle on Musiala, which he got booked for. And then there's an incident with a high foot towards the end of the game where Bayern fans are spitting that he wasn't sent off for a second yellow card. What were your thoughts? It's, it's quite tricky to know what the right answer is with that Bellingham situation because on the one hand it's it is dangerous play um but there's no malicious intent behind it because he's obviously trying to to juggle the ball whilst he's doing it yeah um I certainly don't want to see him getting any more trouble for the Musiala tackle because I think it was firm but I don't think it was was dangerous I, I didn't think that was a card I'll be honest that that tackle I didn't think was a card. Well, this, I'm glad no, you said that because this, I didn't want no, to I think could be a straight red. <laughs> I think this could be a straight red. Now I know I'm with you in the. It's, it's not great, but yeah, it, it does kick you in the face. Uh, the thing is, is you have to you have to differentiate between is it? Oh, no one's going to purpose unless you're Nigel De Jong. No one's going to purposefully kick someone else in a football game. You know, like above their their leg or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to decide if any, if there's any contact between boot and face, whether it's accidental or not, is that an immediate red card? We don't really want that to be the case. But then does it avoid any uncertainty in these kind of situations? But what do you do? Because he's just juggling a football and Davies has put his head down and, and he's been caught. And obviously Davies has had to go off and he's suffered concussion, which, which nobody wants to see. And then do you punish Bellingham for trying to be quite skillful and creative in that moment. I don't I don't really know what the answer is. Yeah, it's it's really hard. I mean, Nagelsmann was furious, which is kind of reasonable considering the way that the game played out. He said, you know, we had a referees meeting, they had a training course, they told us that a kick in the face would be a red. He hits him in the face, the rules well, are clear. Exactly. Uh, well, that's what I mean. So they've clearly been told that any kind of contact to the head is a red card. So in that case, Bellingham should have been sent off. But yeah. there needs to be... Well, I guess there was clear distinction. So you can understand. Okay. 
given that context, you can understand why Nagelsmann was so furious about it. If that's something they've specifically been told and it's not happened, I can understand why that would be frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, let's but then they were two no up. They, yeah. they were two. They were two no up. So I'm sure all of it plays a part in the kind of general malaise that he, he's kind of feeding into after that game. Um, I want to touch on the positives before before we move on. And and the, one of the best things about this equaliser is Nico Schlotterbeck's assist, which is absolutely Ooh. sensational. It's not just the actual cross, but the touch in the box to bring it down, the mm. ability to keep the ball in play, and then to, rather than just whack it back in, to have the kind of nous to look up, see the fact that Manuel Neuer is at his front post and dink it towards the back post where Modeste heads it in. It's just sensational for a centre-back. I would, I would actually argue... His contribution in the first in Dortmund's first goal is on is equal to it, if not maybe even better, yeah. because he comes out from the back, has to deal with a couple of people trying to take him off the ball, then slips the ball inside to Mukoko. So I'd argue because there's kind of a few extra skills on show there, and the fact that he's kind of had to directly kind of dribble past a few players, I'd argue that's as good, if not better. But having said that for a centre-back to show that level of composure in a, in the final minute of a game against, you know, your club's biggest rivals and just, as you said, pull out that absolute peach of a cross is serious techers. That, there's, there's, I can't think of a better word. Like, you know, that's just, that's like your champagne moment. Like, that's absolutely sublime. There are not many defenders in the world who could kind of do that. Yeah, I mean, look, Schlotterbeck cost Dortmund a fair, fair whack this summer. He obviously came in from Freiburg and, Everyone's been raving about him as one of the next great centre-backs. He's not perfect yet defensively. He struggles a little bit from, from set pieces, I think. Mm. But in terms of actually going forward and, and being able to play some of the passes that we've seen him do this season, he is just a remarkable on-ball centre-back and still so young moving forward. I do think that we are looking at one of you know, the world's best in the making and actually Oof. watching him round out his game is going to be really interesting to see to kind of how it develops. But I've really, really liked Nico Schlotterbeck. And um, finally, kind of, it's a bit more of a general question. I'm a bit confused by Dortmund. I mean, I think everybody is, and I think everyone <laughs> is most seasons. But, you know, to go from that collapse last weekend against Cologne to this kind of return to, you know, moments, I suppose, against Bayern and to come out and, and be 2-0 down against your biggest rivals and, you know, the 10-time champions in a row. The, you know, these are <laughs> this is the relentless Bayern winning machine. To be able to pull this out is, is stunning in some ways. They're kind of flip-flapping between being excellent and being bizarrely, you know, brittle. It is one of the strangest things in football. I guess that kind of that, that's kind of what happens when you're you're quite a young team and you go through quite a lot of change. As you said, they brought in a few new players in the summer, Schlotterbeck, Modest, um, and you're trying to bring young players like Mukoku through. You're going to kind of go through those periods of inconsistencies to kind of compare it to Arsenal. People were saying this about Arsenal last season when they'd win three yeah. games in a row and then lose three games in a row. I know it's a slightly different context, but you can definitely draw kind of parallels between it and say, this is just a team who need time to kind of settle and grow into, into what their kind of best version of themselves looks like. But it is certainly bizarre because, as I said, if you look at their underlying numbers, the underlying numbers are pretty terrible. You know, nine games, you've only scored 13 goals and you've conceded 12. That's not form that you'd expect of a team that wants to challenge for the title and be in the top four. Like, you've got to be doing much better than that. Yet, that's, yet for some strange reason, they're still on 16 points. So it will be what I expect will happen is that Bayern will, some of those draws that Bayern have suffered will turn into wins because, as we said, they're still creating chances like. like they're going out of fashion, yeah. Like it's like picking up candy in a store for them. It's just ridiculously easy. And eventually, you know, they'll just turn into wins. I think Dortmund, we might kind of see them slow down a little bit across the course of the season perhaps we shall see we shall see but i think for everyone's entertainment purposes it's great to see a game play out in that regard especially in in the classica because it has been such a bind dominance for, for so long that it feels that it feels like those games you go the, the bundesliga needs this and you know it was delighted to game. see the way it played out and yeah a brilliant brilliant advertisement for the league looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Uh, let's go on to our third and final main segment where we're going to head to Serie A, where the weekend's marquee matchup took place between Milan and Juventus on Paramount+. Plus. Comprehensive 2-0 win for Milan, Jay, and another feather in their cap domestically. Uh, Juve started the faster in this one, but once Milan got into their stride, it was pretty much one-way traffic and they got their just rewards. We wondered a few weeks back if that loss against Napoli would knock Milan off their stride, but they're ticking along quite nicely in the league, to be honest. Yeah, and you know what? This is a really good reaction to them losing 3-0 uh, midweek to Chelsea in the yeah. in the Champions League, especially for Tomori, because I don't think Tomori looked particularly good in that game. And for him to put in a performance like that, when a load of people have been talking about him playing for England and it didn't happen, probably was probably stung, especially because it was against the team he'd he'd obviously come through their academy. Um so for, for, for AC Milan to kind of come out today and for, you know, tomorrow to get on the score sheet and play really well at the back and to kind of put one of their, are we calling Juve a contender for the title at the moment? It seems absolutely strange if we're not, but then they're just playing that poorly. I don't know if we can, but to kind of, as you said, whether that kind of first... A giant, a giant period, is the safe way to put it, isn't it? An giant, Italian giant. An Italian giant. But to kind of weather that early period where Juve did start better off and end up with a 2-0 win, um, and I mean, Rafael Leal hit the post what two or three times in the game, mm. so it could have been more. Um, it just kind of shows you that that's what champions do, right? They suffer, they suffer a defeat to Napoli, as as we mentioned, and then in the next game, they kind of show that they've they've moved on from it and they've kind of learned from it. So they're looking really, really good. I really enjoyed watching this game. I just got to the airport as it as it kicked off on my way home, and I was watching it on my phone. And then I turned Love to the blo- I turned to the bloke next to me, and he was also watching it on his phone. His, <laughs> his phone was a little bit earlier than mine, and we didn't oh. speak, we couldn't speak to each other because my Italian is absolutely dreadful. Um, but he he basically just moved his phone over, and we watched it together. It was, it was actually <laughs> really that. really really quite nice. Um, well, look, you mentioned Leal there. He, he didn't score but he just was an absolute menace once again. It's it, it's almost impossible to stop. You know, if if you go to him, he knocks it past you and goes round. If you let him run at you, you've got absolutely no chance. If you kind of go tight, he spins you. If you stand off him, you know, you can't get near him. It's almost one of those players at the moment you go, I don't know what to do with him. You kind of just have to hope that he's on a on a kind of rough vein of form. And he, he was a little bit in terms of his finishing here. But still, more than caused Juventus nightmares. You'll be having problems for weeks thinking about this one. I think what impresses me the most about him, the more I watch him, is how remarkable his ball-carrying ability is. Yeah. Because normally you associate, you know, the best dribblers in, in football with being quite diminutive players. So, you know, you think of someone like Messi, where they've got a low centre of gravity, you can kind of like dribble in and out of tight spaces. And so they kind of like worm away from defenders. That, that That's what you normally think of, you know, a Maradona-esque player as well. Yeah. But the Al's obviously really tall. So he has to do it in a very, very different way. And the way he kind of just, as I said, carries it with such strength. But then his kind of footwork is so nimble as well, is a real joy to behold. And if I was, if I was coming up against him and I was defending against him, you would be, as you said, wondering how on earth do I actually stop him from doing this? Because he's got the the physique to knock me off the ball, but then he's also quick enough to just flip flap it between my legs and kind of and kind of run past. It's I think he's such a talented player. The more and more I watch him, the, the more and more excited I, I kind of get about 
seeing him kind of hit his his superstar phase because I think we're if we're not already in his superstar phase, I think he is on that way to to kind of becoming that. Yeah, obviously he was MVP last year in the league, but I still think it's probably one of those. It's it's a little while before he fully hits kind of global superstar. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. So if he has another MVP standout season, then I think we can say, okay, he's he's kind of hit global superstar status. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how long AC Milan hold hold on to him for. Would he feel like I want to challenge myself in the Premier League? I know one of my colleagues wrote an article about, I think I think it was James, Horn, James Horncastle, wrote a piece about him being linked with, linked with Chelsea the other day. So it'd be very intriguing to see what kind of lies in, in store for him because he's got to be one of the most exciting players in, in the world of football at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and obviously showcase that at the bridge, even in a loss uh, midweek. Uh, there was a lot of Chelsea fans purring uh, about his performance, <laughs> even in, in if you're purring about performance in a team that <laughs> lost 3 0, you know, things are slightly going. My friend um, Sam Ty describes his running style as surfing, and I really enjoy yes, it. Yes, I like it's that. Like he's surfing with the ball. It's just like one of those, you're like, it's just, it comes in waves, and there's absolutely but, but nothing. That's what I mean. He's tall, but he's, he's so graceful. Um, sometimes you see the taller strikers like that. It's almost like they're just barreling through people and they're just using raw power. Whereas him, he's just so so laid back yet so strong at the same time. It's it's almost quite confusing for your brain to compute when you're watching it. But it is it's, it's cool to watch nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, we're talking of wonderful ball carrying and, and incredible dribbling skills. We had a goal from Brahim Diaz. Competition this season has been added for him. Obviously, Sharda Ketelara entered the fray. Rebic can play in that role. There's there's a few players who can kind of play in the different roles that, that Brahim Diaz does. But he has answered that competition <laughs> with just a, one hell of a performance here, to be perfectly honest with you, capped with an absolutely stunning goal. And then he did the Messi celebration. <laughs> instead in front of the Cordova and it felt fitting after that type of goal honestly I know you were messaging about waxing lyrical about it I was just going to let you wax lyrical about that goal <laughs> yeah. I mean it's just the way that he carries the ball and and like you say you know some players is all about strength and this is almost the opposite he is one of those diminutive yeah. players yeah, yeah, yeah. but very rarely do you see the diminutive players able to shrug off two or three quite poor challenges you know leap a few hurdles carry the ball and then finish you know just like that that was actually what was what was stunning about it it was like you know, almost the exact opposite to Liao you expect Brahim to be doing the kind of intricate things in that kind of 10 role you expect yeah. him to be sort of ducking and diving this felt like he was like right I'm just going to carry the ball 60 yards and I don't care who gets in my way it's the kind of run you expect from Liao it's not necessarily the run you expect <laughs> from from Brahim Diaz but I, I thought he was just absolutely excellent especially in in the second half such a lovely footballer to watch and you know for someone whose career he's obviously been at three massive yeah. clubs to see Real Madrid and now AC Milan, someone whose career threatened to sort of end up being a bit of a bouncer. He's found mm. a home, taking the 10 shirt here, and, and he does just look glorious when he's in full flight. And he feels like he really fits in this team. And it, you know, it just makes me really happy. I just really, <laughs> like, really like him. He seems like a nice lad as well. As, as you kind of mentioned, he was one of those players where he obviously was at Man City, then went to Real Madrid. And I think Pep was quite vocal about being quite disappointed that he'd He'd left Man City at the time. So he was one of those players who were always like, oh, I'm kind of looking forward to, to seeing what he produces. And then when it doesn't happen at Real Madrid, you begin to wonder, you know, is this just another, you know, very talented wonder kid in apostrophes or speech marks rather, who's maybe not going to fulfil their potential. But as you said, he's kind of found his home at AC Milan. And all I, all I can kind of add to the goal is that there's a moment in it where he delays taking a touch before he nutmegs one of the defenders. And that delay is so, so, so important because I think if he takes the touch too early, the defender potentially gets the ball off him. But that delay in a really, really hectic moment, like he would have made that decision in a split second of a split second of a split second, but that was so vital and that kind of shows you how intelligent he is, that even when he was coming up with two or three people surrounding him, he still kind of had that awareness to say, he's coming in that quickly. If I hold it for one split second I can then breeze past him and that that was the moment of that goal that I found the most impressive that 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 minute detail of it 
Yeah, I mean, they, there's that Spanish word, isn't there, pausa, which can mean slightly different things in different situations, but it's the intelligence to just be able to almost stand still when all the madness yeah. is going on around yeah. you, and it did feel exactly like that. So I'm over, and they used to use it for Iniesta a lot, and, and Xavi to kind of, that second they'd hold the ball before releasing the pass that w- would open up the space, but it can mean lots of different things, and I thought that was a nice little example of it from Brahim, a little nod to his Spanish heritage uh, there. Let's flip to Juventus, because frankly they were blunt again five of the front six changed by Allegri during this game three of them before the 60 minute mark nothing is changing Novlavic scored last week and he scored obviously in the Champions League midweek and we thought that that might be a turning point but he was handled here relatively comfortably I thought and and it kind of takes us on to the point that Di Maria comes back in in, in the Champions League game and, you know obviously suspended at the moment in the league he comes back in the Champions League game he gets a hat-trick of assists he should get six he puts six absolute <laughs> golden chances on plates for his teammates they score three of them fine but <laughs> without Di Maria Vlavic and the rest of this Juventus team struggle to create almost anything now Kostic obviously is able to to provide some some excellent deliveries from set pieces we've seen that work for them before but their kind of creative impetus and hub is so reduced without Di Maria. And, and ultimately, if you're relying that much on a player, you know, of his age, you know, this isn't taken away from Di Maria. I absolutely adore Angel Di Maria. I think he's one of the great players and maybe most, or one of the most underrated players that the game has ever seen. He's just absolutely sensational. But if you're that reliant on a player at that age, you're starting to get into a situation that isn't all that comfortable. Yeah, and maybe to 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 kind of add to it, if you're that reliant on a player who's only just joined your club, yeah. um, that kind of speaks volumes of of kind of your your alternative options, and the fact that Allegri kind of made all of those changes just kind of says what we already know that Juventus are in a very very weird situation at the moment where they're not playing particularly well, they've not quite worked out their best starting eleven. You know, they're trying to fit all these people in, and it just seems like a little bit of a an uncoordinated mess at the moment. Um, not playing particularly well at all. And I think we spoke a week ago or two weeks ago about Allegri's future. And I'm sure if this continues to happen, it will kind of happen. That, those rumours and whispers away, yeah. Yeah, will not go away because at the moment they're doing okay against teams that they should expect to be. But when they come up against their, you know, as we kind of said, can we even call them title challengers at the moment? But when they come up against teams at the top of the table who are their, you know, their rivals, they're just losing or playing dreadfully. So they need to they need to sort something out quickly. But what it is, I don't exactly know. Well, other than get Di Maria back as quickly as possible. Yeah, exactly. Wait for suspension to 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 end. Hope that he doesn't get another one. Hope that he definitely doesn't get injured. <laughs> and yeah, absolutely pray to the gods that Pogba's injury doesn't feel as serious as it as it sometimes looks. I think this is this is where Juve are at right now. And ultimately, they're struggling without two of the key signings they made in the summer. That's natural. But equally, you have to be able to find solutions. And you know, not being able to find attack solutions cost Thomas Tuchel his job not that long ago at Chelsea and Max Allegri is kind of suffering similarly I think especially when you you know you, you asked him well the media asked him recently you know how, what are you going to do and he's like oh I've got loads of injuries Milan weren't clear here at all you know Milan weren't weren't going into this game on a complete bill of health and they've just answered that by being like this is how you play when you have injuries this is how you play when you mm. have people missing you you work it out you create solutions yeah. and and Juventus just don't seem to have any ability to do that all right let's go around the ground shall we uh let's start Germany Let's go to the Bundesliga where Union Berlin bounced back from their first league defeat of the season last time out to maintain their place at the top of the table with a win over Stuttgart. A Gladbach absolutely hammered Cologne in the derby, running out 5-2 winners, which would have calmed the nerves a little bit, I think, after a topsy-turvy start to their season. And Xabi Alonso took charge of his first game as Leverkusen <laughs> boss, promptly guided them to a 4-0 hammering of Schalke. Now, look, Schalke are quite bad, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. But the early signs are good for Alonso's first foray into to senior elite tier football management. It's a nice appointment, this, Jay. And I think you'll find very few people in football who aren't kind of rooting for Xabi Alonso to be a success. Yeah, I couldn't have put it any better. He was just such a, a suave player. Um, one of those players who, he was such an intelligent central midfielder, even though he wasn't the most mobile, he just always kind of seemed to be in the right place at the right time. So you always sometimes think, 
an intelligent midfielder will surely translate into an intelligent coach, right? Uh, and so to actually get to see him given that opportunity at, at Leverkusen uh, is going to be really, really, really in, in, in exciting to see. Yeah, I mean, it's also a nice one in that he seems to have done things the right way. Obviously, yes. he, he went yes. to Sociedad and he, he's kind of worked his way up through the youth teams. He hasn't taken, you know, a jump on the first opportunity he's, he's been given. He's waiting who, who for the are right... You, uh, who are you firing a shot at? <laughs> I mean, I'm not firing shots at anybody. I'm just saying it's nice It's nice to see a coach work up the way through, make their badges and, and wait for a, a chance to go, OK, this is a, a, you know, a club that I think I can change or yeah. at least I can put an imprint on. And we, we saw him playing in different ways. He, he played a three at the back here, which some people might have been like, hang on, that's Javier Alonso playing a three at the back. But he did that <laughs> a little bit with Real Sociedad. He's done some interesting tactical things. And I'm really excited to see how that one pans out. Um, in France, PSG had no Lionel Messi to call on and they failed to score for the first time in months in fact the last time they failed to score domestically jay i'll give you one guess as to who didn't play messi that's right that's right <laughs> messi doesn't play There's i wondered if that was a, a trick PSG. question for no. a, for a moment i was like i thought i was being set up to dramatically fail so no I'm glad, glad i got that right yeah, yeah, nailed it. Uh, Leon lost to DeLong and they promptly sacked head coach Petter Bosch, who's been replaced since by former France international Laurent Blanc. He's been out of the management game for a little while. He's been off playing goat, playing, playing goat, playing golf in the in the <laughs> middle of the desert. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with him back in management. Um, but also PSG's closest challenges so far, Marseille failed to take advantage of drop points in Paris. They fell to a shock defeat at home to Ajaccio. It means Lorient, who we were singing some praises of last week, have moved up to second in Liga. It's not bad for a newly promoted side, is it? Nice little story still unfolding at Lorient. Love that. Yeah, absolutely. I do, right. I do with PSG. I do feel like Ramos was a little bit unlucky with that red card. I actually think for once he maybe didn't deserve a red card. I mean, the death taxes, Sergio Ramos, red cards, right? <laughs> <laughs> One of those I mean, things. I think you're if right. He's, if, he, if he's been given a yellow card for the initial challenge, well, then he doesn't make contact with the player or the ball, anyways. So. Are you just giving him two yellow cards for descent in the space of 10 seconds? I mean, if anyone could do it. Of course, but <laughs> he he didn't look that animated in the grand scheme of things. It didn't no. look like... Like, I've seen players say... I've seen players act far more aggressively to referees, and I'm not saying that's what they should do and not get punished. It seemed like, even though he was, you know, trying to have a little bit of a debate with the referee, it didn't look like he was going about it in the wrong way, per se. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I thought it was a harsh red card as well. But I mean, I assume reputations start to run in front oh, of, of you course. at that point, right? Of course, and, of course. and ultimately, that's that's the reputation that he <laughs> has. Um, okay, Serie A saw Napoli continue their winning streak. They won 4-1 against Cremonese. Tidy up nicely, actually. They've been packed, pegged back to 1-0. They scored two goals in injury time here. They just like to leave it late. Um, so do Udinese. They still don't know when they're beat. They were losing 2-0 at home to early pace setters Atalanta. Hauled it back into 2 all to take a very credible point of Ladea and they remain third level on points with Milan. Uh, Inter got another important win this time against Sassuolo continuing on from that win over Barcelona in midweek and Roma edged past 10 man Lecce. It's not always pretty Jay with Roma but they are finding a way. <laughs> yeah exactly that. In Spain, 1-0 wins for both Barcelona and Real Madrid kept them level on points at the top of the pile and pulling away from the competition. Uh, Athletic Club, who currently sit third, drew 1-0 with Sevilla in Jorge Sampaoli's first game in charge of the Andalusian outfit. Athletic's heart and spirit is so evident right now. I just love, love watching them play. They remain a joy to behold. And Athletic beat Girona 2-1, propelling them into fourth, meaning that the next week is set up so beautifully in Spain. First versus second in El Clasico. And third versus fourth in Bilbao, where Athletic hosts their red and white counterparts from Madrid. That is sensational. You don't get that. That is very chaos. That's that's what that is. That's a recipe for chaos. That's what it is. I'm very excited about it. Very, very excited about it, especially because I'm going to be at that game in Bilbao. Um, and finally, in the Premier League, Arsenal won once again, this time against Liverpool to stay top. More questions answered for Arteta's men, more questions for Klopp's. Bakayo Saka with the brace, though. Love to see that. Manchester United's renaissance continues. They saw off a resurgent Everton coming from behind to win 2-1 at Goodison Park. Cristiano Ronaldo's 700th club goal, clinching all three points. United up to fifth. 
Erling Haaland only scored one, though. Yeah, but City did score four against <laughs> Southampton. It's interesting that everyone else is stepping up on the goal-scoring front for City, too, You know, especially Phil Foden. Do you reckon, Jay, the presence of Haaland makes that pressure a little bit reduced and therefore it's a bit easier just to not overthink the finishes because, you know, if it's one all and it comes to in the last minute, you know, you're thinking about it loads. If it's, you know, one all and you've got Erling Haaland there, you're like, he might score in two minutes anyway. So I might just be able to just not necessarily panic so much over this. Yeah, you could potentially argue that players like Foden, where, you know, Manchester City played a lot of games without a traditional number nine last season, um, ended up playing in slightly unnatural positions for them. Um, and making movements that were they kind of had to learn. They didn't come instinctively. So now, now that they do have Haaland, who just obviously just plays straight down the middle, um, they can then reg regress is the wrong word, but they, you know they can now play in their favoured positions and make runs that they've been making throughout their entire career, which they're more used to, as opposed to you know maybe moving off the ball more to create space for others if Foden was playing in the false nine role, for example. So I reckon we're just seeing him flourishing because he's being played in a position that suits his strengths better. Yeah, and so it's an interesting And one, isn't it? he's just a young player who, you know, grows and grows and grows and grows. Yeah, and now he has a and now he has a big Norse Viking up top scoring the chances <laughs> he puts on the plate. Um, I was uh, we did touch it on at the top, but I did want to talk to you very briefly about the Newcastle Brentford game. Now, obviously, not a good result for Brentford, but Newcastle starting to rise up this league table. Now, it wasn't a complete, complete performance, but there were some very impressive moments from Newcastle, even if Brentford decided they were going to gift them a couple of goals. <laughs> um, are Newcastle going to be European challengers, considering where they are, how they're playing at the moment, and also the fact that there are some sort of slight drop-offs from maybe the teams that we kind of expected to be lock-ins for these European spots? I think when I was, um, first of all, that I love going to, to St. James's Park. It's Amazing, a tremendous it? atmosphere. But the banner um, that, you know, a section of Newcastle's fans pulled out ahead of the game, if you've not seen it, please please look it up, people. It's this weekend kind of marked the one-year anniversary of the club's takeover by, obviously, the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. And uh, they pulled out this massive banner, um, which was, I think it was essentially mocking Sky Sports News is L-shape. And that was slightly strange for me because I used to work on Sky Sports, for Sky Sports News and control that L-shape. So it was like just seeing something you used to do for work appear on a banner in a football stadium was just very bizarre. But I say that to say that is a, a city and a club so united, you know, even before kickoff, you know, I'm looking around thinking if Brentford get a point from this game, like this is like a tremendous performance. So I think you really have to put St. James's Park up there as one of the, the most difficult places to go to in the league now and, and, and get a result. Um, but in terms of how they actually played as a team, Brentford did not help themselves because there were a lot of very silly individual errors. And yeah. I don't think Thomas Frank got the right midfield combination because he didn't play with a with an obvious defensive midfielder. But Bruno Guimaraes was obviously amazing, um, very, very clever player, um, so, so, so good. But it was actually the first time I'd ever seen Kieran Trippier play live before and actually came away thinking he impressed me more just for the stuff he does on the ball as much as off the ball because everybody watches, you know, highlights and sees Trippier putting in crosses and, you know, his set-piece delivery and stuff like that. It's Everybody knows that, but it's more the way he organised the players off the ball and... Even the way he used his body against Ivan Tony in one moment, and I think Tony fell over. And obviously, Tony's you know six two six three, really really strong striker. And Trippier's what five eight okay. maybe, yeah, much much smaller. And it was just those intelligent moments. And so I was just looking at that Newcastle team, thinking you've very clearly got two world class players in Bruno Guimaraes and Kieran Trippier. They're such a great vibe around the club. Played 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 really well. Um, I thought Botman wasn't amazing but you can definitely see he's got the underlying qualities to become so a, smooth a, yeah he's got the underlying qualities to to become a, a world-class centre-back I thought on another day Tony probably would have given him more problems so to finally come back to the question you asked me at the very beginning 10 hours ago I think all of the ingredients are there for Newcastle to be European challengers this season they've obviously drawn quite a few games but crucially, they've, I think they've only lost once. I think that was to Liverpool. So they're becoming a really, really stubborn side to break down. They're looking very good going forward. Um, St. Maximum 
and Miguel Almiron seem to have much better end product than they did maybe under previous managers. Um, and they played that well. And Alexander Isak, their, you know, their, their star striker, w- wasn't even available. So I think when, when everything kind of comes together, I would not be surprised at all if, if Newcastle qualified for, you know, Euro- possibly Europa League sneak in, but definitely Europa Conference League. They, they, they've, they've definitely got a good chance of doing that. Yeah, it definitely feels like them and Brighton are the best of the rest, you know, outside the traditional big six, seven. Um, and it's just a question of whether those those kind of form books hold up uh, yeah. as teams improve from their original starts to the season. But yeah, Newcastle, very impressive. Watched them live last weekend and they were they were excellent. So um, even <laughs> against, yeah, Fulham didn't help themselves last weekend. Brentford yeah. didn't help themselves this weekend. But ultimately, that's just where we are. And this is a Newcastle side that forces errors. But with that, it's time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup of the big stories across Europe this weekend and all that's left for me to do is say thank you to you all for listening thank you so much Mr Jay Harris pleasure as always I'm just glad we both made it back in one piece from uh, all our crazy travels to uh, to talk about football what more could you ask for uh, the perfect way to round off a weekend Jay as I always say I've been Jack Collins this has been your weekend review and we will see you all next week take it easy